0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a producer here at the editorial team at the IAI, and I'm Ricky, production lead here at the IAI. So, Ricky, today we've got How to Be a Skeptic, a talk by famed Stoic philosopher and author Massimo Pigliucci. It took place at How the Light Gets In 2022 a Philosophy Festival, produced by the team here at the IAI. This talk obviously is about skepticism, the
2: idea that we must hold all our beliefs very loosely. While it's easy to criticize others' ideas and beliefs, like conspiracy theories, we rarely criticize our own ideas or our own beliefs quite as clearly. And Massimo basically argues that we need to be much
1: more sceptical about our own thoughts and beliefs. Interesting. So, Ricky, does that lead us to progress or just sheer confusion? I think it can lead to a kind of personal progress. I
2: think it's a more mature mindset to not hold all your beliefs as though they're certain facts. But in scientific and technological progress, I think probably
1: assuming certain things as true can be quite useful. One thing is for certain: this is not an episode to be missed. So remember, if you do enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's time to welcome Massimo Piglusi
2: to Philosophy for Our Times.
3: I think that a philosophy of life has three components. It has a metaphysics, which is essentially an account of how the world works. There is an ethics, which is an account of how we should live in the world, given how the world is. Uh, In order to figure out how to live your life, how to behave with other people, you need to know something about how the world is actually put together. And then usually, although not always, there is a set of practices to help you implement those two things, particularly the ethics. The ethics is the practical part. So let's take, for instance, Christianity, which is a religion, but I, I contend that religions are, in fact, types of philosophies of life. There is really no fundamental difference there. In terms of the metaphysics, of course, there is a more or less benevolent God, depending if you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament, who created the world, is outside of the world itself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In terms of ethics, you can refer to the Ten Commandments, to the teachings of Jesus, of the apostles, and so on. And in terms of practices, you pray, you have communal activities, you are reading scriptures and stuff like that, right? And you can go through the other two lines. The same is for Buddhism, for Stoicism, for any kind of other philosophy or religion. So this is what it means. This is what we're talking about today, uh, to have or follow a religion or philosophy of life. Now, when it comes to skepticism in particular, the word skeptic comes from the Latin "skepticus," which itself is derived from the Greek skepticos. And those words mean inquirer, or somebody who reflects on things and tries to learn with an open mind. So a skeptic is not somebody who says has a knee-jerk reaction every time you tell him something and says no. Is actually somebody who says, okay, let's take a look. And by taking a look, as we'll see in the next few minutes, mostly that means what are your arguments and what is your evidence for why I should believe X, Z, or Y. Skepticism has a long history Arguably, it started out in the Western tradition with Socrates in the fifth century BCE, and then you'll see a number of people there who will encounter again in a minute, the of Elis, Marcus, Tullius, Cicero, all the way into the late antiquity with Sextus Empiricus. Then you skip the Middle Ages, no skeptics in the Middle Ages, basically, because if you were a skeptic in the Middle Ages, you'd likely be burned to death or subjected to other such unpleasant situations. So we get to the Renaissance directly, and we have people like Michel de Montaigne, René Descartes, the famous, I think, therefore I am, Baruch Spinoza, and most importantly, probably, arguably, David Hume. Now, as I said, you probably n- noticed that these are all dead, mostly white men, but the situation has been improving recently. We were talking about modern skepticism, 20th, 21st century skepticism. You can see here and popping up a few women, like Susan Gerbeck, Harriet Hall, Carl Tavares, Eugenie Scott, actually there's a lot more of that. But this is pretty much the art, the historical art we're talking about. This almost continuous tradition, except for the Middle Ages, from the 5th century BCE up until literally now. There are two fundamentally different, and yet I will argue in the next few minutes, also fundamentally related types of skepticism. Let's refer to them from now on as ethical skepticism and scientific skepticism. Ethical skepticism, in a sense, refers to the second of those components of a philosophy of life that I was talking about, that is, how do you live your life? Ethics, especially for the Greco-Romans, was really the study of how to live your life. It wasn't just about determining what is right or what is wrong in any particular action. It was more broadly an issue of what should I do in life? What kind of priorities should I have? How should I behave with other people? That's ethical skepticism. And then there is scientific skepticism, which really has to do with the first component, that I was talking earlier, the metaphysics. Not metaphysics as understood today, philosophical zombies, panpsychism, and all that sort of nonsense. Sorry. Uh, but rather, metaphysics in the sense of, as I said, a picture of the world. Today, we call it science. Okay, Not really metaphysics in the original sense. What i like to convince you of, among other things, is that, first of all, the two are actually not that different. That, that once you see them from the point of view of a skeptic, Both ethics and science actually fall into the same general kind of domain. And secondarily, that it's actually time to bring back a new form of skepticism, originate a new form of skepticism where the two are actually merged into one coherent view, more or less coherent view of the world. If you're a skeptic, you can't say that you definitely are going to have a coherent view of the world. You should say more or less, probably. So let's start with ethical skepticism. And we here need to go very briefly to antiquity, to the period in ancient classical Rome and Greece, there were essentially two types of skepticism. I'm going to introduce both of them and then we're going to abandon one because it's less relevant to what we're going to talk about today. But for the sake of completeness, I think I should mention both of them. One is actually referred to, I'll talk about it from now on as Pyrrhonism, or Pyronian skepticism, but Pyrrhonism is actually a better, a short shorthand. Started out with that guy on the left, who was Pyrrho, and, and then later on the major author led Antiquity, Sexus and the other one is referred to as academic skepticism. Academic because it actually took over Plato's Academy after Plato had died. And from now on, I'll refer to it as just skepticism without the academic part, okay? So, Pyrrhonism, skepticism, but they're both kinds, types of skepticism. And major people there are Carneades, left of the right, and then Cicero. So how do they differ? They differ in three major respects. First of all, in terms of what philosophers call epistemology, there is how, a theory of knowledge. How do we know things? Do we know things in the first place? But how do, and, and if so, how? For the Pyrenees, there is in fact no firm support for any kind of opinions, which they refer that to as dogmas. Outside of evident matters. That is, there are some things that are kind of evident and we don't really need to waste our time talking about it. For instance, it's pretty evident that I'm here talking to you guys and that there is a certain number of people here. Sure, we could entertain the possibility that I'm actually living in the matrix and or I'm a brain in a vat and all that, but why? There's really no particular reason for doing that. This is evident. But then there are non-evident matters. How you should live your life is a non-evident matter. It can be debated. There is a question, it's a complex question of evidence, arguments, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, the Pyronists rejected anything that had to do with non-evident matter. They say, you know what, if it comes to that, you really don't know what you're talking about, you don't have enough reasons to back up your dogmas. The the word was dogma, which in in the ancient world just meant opinion. The academic skeptics, on the other hand, said, oh, you you can have a certain, you can have opinions, and in fact, some opinions are better than others. You probably will never arrive at certain knowledge. You might not have it, you might never get there because human beings, you know how do we get knowledge? We get knowledge from our senses and from our reason, and both of them are fallible. We know that sometimes either reason or our senses or both can actually lead us to the wrong conclusion, so they're fallible, so we're never sure. That doesn't mean, however, that every opinion is created equal. There are some things that are far more probable than others, more, more convincing than others, and so the sensible thing to do is to follow whatever it is that appears to be more likely. Now, in terms of practice, the two schools also differed. The Pyrrhonists said that we should suspend judgment on anything that is non-evident. So, because you don't have knowledge, because you don't have any particular reason to, to go one way or the other, you should just engage in suspension or judgment. Now, even though I'm not a Pyrrhonist, I think this is a great idea. Today, we seem to be so damn sure about almost everything even though we usually don't have any good reasons to be damn sure. And we are so judgmental. We tell other people that they should be living their lives in a different way. There was absolutely certain suspension of judgment. That's actually, at least as an exercise, it's not a bad idea. As far as the academic skeptics are concerned, what happens in terms of practice, you arrive at tentative opinions based on probability. The Greek word was pitanon, which interestingly translated in Latin as probabilis, which is the root for the English probability. So you go after, you, you practice what is probable. You, you act on the basis of what appears to you to be probable, given the facts that you have available. Should the facts change, or should the, your understanding of the facts change, then you're gonna change your way of acting. And then finally, in terms of ethics, that is, okay, so how do I behave therefore in general? What is my goal in life? For the Pyrrhonists, goal of life is tranquility of mind. Sounds boring. A lot of people go after it. It's like, all right, I want to be serene, tranquil, and the best way to do that is to suspend judgment. Why? Because we are attached to our judgments. Our identity depends on our judgments. And so when we, when our judgments and our opinions are challenged by somebody, we take it as a personal offense. And that creates, we we'll get really upset and riled up and all that sort of stuff. So the notion here is if you wanna be serene, and tranquil in your life, just let go of all those opinions don't attach touched into your ego, and you're gonna be fine. Easier said than done. But it's not a bad idea. As far as the academic skeptics are concerned, on the other hand, we should just live like many other Greco-Roman schools suggested. That, that is by practicing one of the four cardinal virtues known as practical wisdom. You're basically gonna do whatever seems more likely, more probable, more effective, and more just. And that depends, because it is based on opinions, the opinion, your opinions themselves are based on probability, your probabilities will change throughout life, so there is no general rule for living, it's just you have to make it up as you go. Sounds familiar. As I said, we're gonna focus on this one from now on. Now what about scientific skepticism, the second type of skepticism that I was talking about, the first one being ethical what well, it's been defined in a number of ways by different authors. Here's Paul Kurtz in a book called, that came out in 1992 called The New Skepticism. He said, briefly stated, a skeptic is one who is willing to question any claim to truth, asking for, certainty, for clarity sorry, in definitions, consistency in logic, and adequacy evidence. In other words, show me the evidence. You know, if, you're claiming, if you're claiming X, I'd like to know why you're claiming X. On what basis are you making that claim? Carl Sagan, in 95, in a book called The Demon-Hunted World said that the question is not whether we like the conclusion that emerges out of a train of reasoning, but whether the conclusion follows from the premises or starting point, and whether the premises, premises is true. In other words, it doesn't matter what you like to be true, what matters is what you think is true based on evidence, based on questioning your own premises, and so on and so forth. But that's what scientific skepticism is largely about. Scientific skepticism has a huge span of application. These are some examples, telepathy, eugenics, the notion that you could and should breed human beings for improvement, Bigfoot, astrology, uh, homeopathy, because homeopathic medicine is in fact just water with sugar, to be fair. So, this is the kind of stuff that, typically, scientific skeptics are concerned with, okay? So, to to analyze these kind of claims and say, why do you think that there is, in fact, such a thing as telepathy, for instance? Or, why do you think that we should not take vaccines and so on and so forth? Now, the fact is, ethical and scientific skepticism, which I suggest we should bring back together, I'm using the word back because they, in fact, have been born simultaneously or about simultaneously. And I'm going to give you two examples of this. One is an extract from one of the famous Socratic dialogues, one of the dialogues that Plato wrote down that allegedly Socrates was involved with. And this is, as far as I know, the first time in Western tradition where we hear raise the question of what is the difference between medicine and quackery. So how do you know, Socrates is going to ask in a minute, how do you know the difference between a doctor and somebody who pretends to be a doctor? which is an important question, even today, practically speaking. And I'll give you just a little bit of the dialogue because it's very interesting and it exemplifies how often Socratic dialogues actually go. So I'm gonna play both characters, Socrates and his interlocutor. Socrates says, let us consider the matter in this way. If the wise man or any other man wants to distinguish the true physician from the false, how will he proceed? He who would inquire into the nature of medicine must test in health and disease, which are the sphere of medicine and not in what is extraneous and is not its sphere. In other words, if you're talking about medicine, we need to carry out tests that are pertinent to medicine. And his friend, Krishas, who was Plato's cousin says, true. And he wishes to make a fair test of the physician as a physician will test him in what relates to these matters, you will, this is a typical so dialogue, by the way, Socrates going on and on, and the other guy said, of course Socrates. Yes, Socrates. <laughs> Naturally, Socrates. There are exceptions, but... He will consider whether what he says is true and whether what he does is right in relation to health and disease. He will. But can anyone pursue the inquiry into either unless he has a knowledge of medicine? That is, can you actually test these claims unless you yourself have enough knowledge about medicine? Today we would say, can you do your own research on Google? Is that good enough? And he said, no, it cannot. You can't just Google it and figure out what happened. No one at all, it would seem, except the physician, can have this knowledge and therefore not the wise man. He would have to be a physician as well as a wise man. Very true, Socrates. So this is from the Cármides. Socrates' conclusion is that you can't do your own research unless enough about what you're researching already so that you can make sense of what you're reading. I have a relative, for instance, who asked me at one point the, during the pandemic the access to original papers showing that the vaccines are safe and so on and so forth. And I said, why would you want to do that? Because I want to read them. Yes, why would you want to read those papers? Those are fairly complicated stuff with a lot of statistical analysis, stuff, it's because she wanted to do her own research. She did, She didn't understand the thing. The second case is from Cicero. Cicero at some point wrote in a a book on divination and astrology where he harshly criticized people who believed in divination, so the the ability to predict the future based on things like the entrails of animals and the flight of birds and stuff like that. Both divination and astrology, of course, are still with us today, and so it's interesting that we've been battling that battle for more than 2,000 years. And here's a couple of quotes from Cicero. He says, as I fear to hastily give my assent to something false or insufficiently substantiated, it seems that I should make a careful comparison of arguments, for to hasten to give assent to something erroneous is shameful in all things. He's making an ethical point, that to agree to give assent to something that is not true or is not sufficiently substantiated, it's actually unethical. It's a bad idea. Why is it unethical? Because it has consequences on ourselves and, our, and other people. This is not a game. If you take the vaccine or you don't take the vaccine, it's not a game, there are consequences. If you believe in climate change or you don't believe in climate change, there are consequences with these things. That's why it becomes part of ethics. And going on he says, speaking frankly, superstition which is widespread among the nations already then and just as much today, has taken advantage of human weakness to cast its spell over the mind of almost every man. So superstition, believing in nonsense, believing in stuff that doesn't have sufficient backing in terms of evidence was a problem 2,000 years ago, and it still is a problem today. Do
1: you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: Now, Cicero identified five criteria to, as we would say today, as modern philosophers of science would say today, to address the demarcation problem, to demarcate, to separate science from pseudoscience, stuff that actually works from stuff that doesn't work. And these are the five criteria. The internal logical consistency of whatever it is that the person was suggesting, to the degree of empirical confirmation of the predictions made on the basis of whatever notion was being discussed. You looked at the degree of specificity of the mechanisms that were proposed to underlie a particular notion, for instance, oh you think divination works because somehow the entrails of animals tell us about the future, how does that work exactly? What is the causal connection between the entrails of an animal and your future? He looked at the degree of arbitrariness in the application of a particular idea, the fact that typically, purveyors of pseudoscience, are very selective about where their stuff, when their stuff works and doesn't work. And then he also looked at the degree of selectivity of the data by the practitioners themselves, in other words, oh, this didn't work. Well, that's because the conditions were not right and that's why it didn't work. It's not that it didn't work because it's nonsense, it didn't work because the conditions somehow were not right. Interestingly, these are essentially the same criteria that we today still use in order to have meaningful discussions of science versus pseudoscience. Now, what do the two have in common, meaning ethical and scientific skepticism? Four things. One, knowledge is assumed to be tentative and probabilistic, remember, Cicero invented the term probability in the first place, right? Now, I'm not going to go into details on this. This is the only equation that I'm going to show you. The full version of it is called bias. It comes from bias theorem. It's well-known theorem in probability theory today. But basically, the idea is that the probability of a given claim, let's say homeopathy works or astrology works, is proportional to, to that product the product of the probability of seeing the evidence as we understand it, as we actually observe it, given the claim, times the probability of the claim working a priori. How does that work? For instance, the probability that astrology is true is proportional to the product of the probability of observing the evidence that we do observe, when you do an experiment, let's say, on astrology, if astrology were in fact true, multiplied by the probability of the theoretical likelihood that astrology works. Theoretical meaning based on whatever else we know about the universe and how it works. Turns out that this number down here is very small because we know enough about physics, astronomy, psychology, etc. to have very low confidence of astrology a priori. This number is also very low because it turns out when you do experiments with professional astrologers, they don't get results better than chance in terms of matching astrological charts to people. The probability, those two low probabilities multiply with each other, gives you a very, very low probability that a storage is true. It's not zero, but it's very low. In fact, the fact that it's not zero, it's important, that's my second point. If you're a skeptic, you should be open to revise your opinion, should the situation on the ground change. If, it all, turn, if all of a sudden it turns out, in fact, that there are new discoveries, theoretical discoveries inside theoretical physics, and or new experiments showing a surprising degree of accuracy of astrological predictions, then as a skeptic, I should say, oh, turns out I was wrong. Those numbers go up. What is important is to keep those numbers, that number, the final number, the probability that you think that you assign to a particular claim away from either zero or one. Because if you assign probability zero or probability one, that is 100%, a claim, that means that you're essentially impervious, become impervious to new evidence. Bias' theorem actually shows you, I'm not going to demonstrate it now, but Bias' theorem, trust me on this one, you can look it up, on Google, shows that it, once your number, your probability, goes to either zero or one, then no further evidence is ever going to actually change your mind. Basically, in, in common parlance, you now switch from examining the evidence to believing by faith. And therefore, you're not going to change your mind. Another thing that, that both scientific skepticism and ethical skepticism have in common is that we do what we do because we are actually interested, we care about the truth. Yesterday I was in a panel on virtual reality and whether we should spend our lives in, in, in a virtual world. That is one of the reasons, there are several reasons why we shouldn't. One of the reasons is because if you care about the truth, by definition the virtual world is not in fact true. It's, it's fake. That means in this context no bullshit. Right? Why not bullshit? Because bullshit hurts people. As I said, again, think about vaccines, think about climate change, think about all these things. And by the way, calling bullshit on someone else for good reasons is not evidence of having a close mind. It's evidence of the fact you're thinking and you're asking for evidence, which should be a good thing. Number four, that is the fourth thing that ethical and scientific skepticism have in common is we do what we do because we want a better life for both ourselves and other people. We do care about, so the ancient Greco-Romans had this nice set that I'm gonna show you in a minute of concentric circles to explain how ethics works. And they thought, of course we care about ourselves. This is natural for human beings. If you look at a toddler, the first thing it does is it cares about itself. Doesn't want to get hurt and he wants pleasure. Right. But very soon, we have an instinct to start caring also for our caretakers, for people that are around us, for generally speaking, our family. Then we grow up and naturally and by use of our reason we start caring about a larger circle of people, including for instance friends, and then our community at large. And then perhaps if you're really advanced in your ethics, humanity at large, and if you really advanced, then you know, every sentient being on the planet. Because you care about all these things, all these circles, that is why you don't want bullshit around. Because all of these things are gonna be affected negatively by nonsense. Are there limits to the application of a skeptical attitude? I don't think actually of skepticism as a, literally as a philosophy of life, I think of it more as an attitude toward things, including a philosophy of life. And I don't think it has any limits of application. Pretty much you can be a skeptic about ethics, politics, pseudoscience, history, philosophy, science, economics, talks about skepticism, like this one, and so on and so forth. There is no limit because what you're really asking every time you you deploy your skeptical attitude is simply you're asking the other person to provide you with evidence and reasons to believe what he or she believes. That's all you're doing. It's really not that much to ask for, you think. But it turns out that often enough people get upset, especially when it comes to politics or when it comes to ethics or economics. Now, the Greco-Romans thought that a good life, which they called a eudaimonic life, a life worth living, in a sense, is the result of three things, which have been implied throughout this talk. It's a result of thinking what they call logic. Today, we by logic, we typically mean formal logic and kind of stuff that you study at university in philosophy departments. But what they meant by logic was actually reasonable thinking, good thinking, a good habit of thinking. What they call science, they actually call it metaphysics, but what we would today call science, in other words, an understanding of how the world works, and what they call ethics, that is an understanding of how to live in that world. These three things feed into each other because if you have a better understanding of the world, if you don't understand anything about vaccines or climate change and so on and so forth, you're actually likely to think incorrectly about those things and therefore you're also likely to live a suboptimal life or in fact even to die. So a life worth living, a eudaimonic life is actually the result of these three things. We need to learn to think better, we need to learn to pay attention to evidence about how the world works and we need to find ways to implement those things, that kind of knowledge into everyday life.
1: That surely was an interesting talk there, Ricky.
3: Yeah, he's an
2: excellent speaker. Always really impassioned about his arguments. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.